0: Before we start the show, I wanted to shout out to all the women founders who are listening. Following the success of Scale's first Empower Ed program back in April, Scale Investors has now opened applications for Cohort 2, which starts on the 9th of August. If you're a woman founder and want direct access to the secrets of how to secure the funding you need to build a thriving business from the experts of Australia's startup ecosystem – and connection to Scales Investor Network, then sign up today. All founders can use discount code CONNECT2CAPITAL for a 25% scholarship. This brings the 10-week program down to $650. That's $65 per week, including weekly mentoring, resources, connections, and much, much more. It takes 10 minutes to apply, and there's a link right in the show notes. Let's empower you to connect to the capital that you need. Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive in this podcast we interview australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap we hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future it's time to open access karen west is the founder and managing director of apostle funds management I think of her as the fund whisperer, with a seemingly mystical ability to connect institutional investors, like the big Australian superannuation funds, with the exact specialist investment management capability that they maybe didn't even realise they needed. Karen left the security of a great job at Rothschild to single-handedly launch an unknown American manager in Australia, and then went on to establish Apostle in 2008. Now, with over 30 years of experience in the finance sector, Karen refutes that her success is anything magical. It's just the outworking of years of honing her skills, network, and always being able to see things from her client's perspective. Hi, Karen, great to see you. Great to speak with you, thanks for having me. I feel very lucky that we have the opportunity to have a chat today because you're not in Australia at the moment. Where are you and, and what's sort of the mood where you are relative to Australia at the moment?
1: Well, I am lucky enough to be in Europe escaping the uh, dreadful weather that everyone's enduring in Sydney. And we have a number of managers based around the world that we work with, with a couple based up in Edinburgh. So I'll be heading up to Edinburgh fairly shortly. But at the moment, I am in sunny France.
0: So you mentioned then that you work with managers all around the world. Do you want to just give us a sense of what your job actually is?
1: My role is to work mostly with the institutional and wholesale clients in Australia and New Zealand, And find a balance of products that they are interested in and I am looking for a a range of things. I don't like to have all my eggs in one basket so I'm looking to distribute to the Australian market usually quite unique expertise that is relatively difficult to find so not um, another me too type of product and I'm also trying to look forward over the next decade or so to, to sort of work with our large clients, where where they're going to, what, what are their future needs. And in particular, I'm looking at um, ethical and impact investing. That's the platform that Apostle offers to the client base in Australia. We look at all things ethical and impactful around the world. And that, that goes through asset class. So we look at equities like global equity managers, Credit and fixed income, green bonds, for example, we look at renewables, we look at alternatives, private equity, venture capital. We we really Timberland, we we scour far and wide for things that we think are going to be really important for our institutional clients to have over the next 10 plus years.
0: And ESG seems to be the absolute must-have for everyone at the moment. And and I think there's some concern about that greenwashing, the sort of everyone saying that they have positive impact and perhaps that's not always the case. How do you sniff out where people are authentically delivering the impact that they promise?
1: So I think that there's a spectrum of what it means. It's not one size fits all. There's a quite a big spectrum and the ESG movement started 20 years ago Going through the UNPRI, it was mostly around environmental issues, uh, social and governance. And they were making sure that companies were well governed, that there was good practices for ensuring there was no child labour, for example. But that has evolved over that 20-year period to be something much more critical in these times of uh, climate change in particular is the primary concern of investors. There's a number of concerns that we try to solve for, but I would say that that's really the number one area. Gender diversity is another area that we particularly look at. So they're two very strong features in our product range, that they're the things that Apostle is trying to solve for. Our institutional clients also Typically solving for those two, but they're they're working with a range of you know problems that they're trying to solve for. So for some clients, having a more light touch on ESG might be appropriate. And for other clients who are really trying to do a lot more very specific work for a particular product, they will need something really quite different and, and much more impactful. So there's not sort of any right or wrong. Going to your greenwashing question, it's also to do with what the end client's objective is. So if their objective is to deliver on no animal cruelty, no fossil fuels, high gender diversity scores, if they've got quite specific objectives that they're looking for, you really need to make sure that they're being measured and monitored. So if you're doing products like we do, we measure everything and get it validated externally so that we can measure year on year how we're progressing through our investments with contributing to, to climate change action, to diversity scores, et cetera. We want to see a continual improvement going forward. We as a group have signed up for a net zero score by 2040 some of our clients have got 2050, some have got no particular date at all. So it it does vary a lot from client to client, but Apostle's got its own range of objectives that we get measured and monitored against, and that's your safeguard for greenwashing. If these things are not being measured, monitored and externally validated,
0: it it is a bit more problematic. Just so that I sort of understand exactly the work that you do. You don't actually manage money yourself. You don't make investment decisions about, you know, invest in this company or that bond. But you effectively connect institutional investors with investment managers from wherever you can find them that are delivering the unique types of investments That they need for their portfolio is that right
1: we have two parts of our business um, and our genesis was in doing just distribution only to the institutional and wholesale investors which was finding managers typically offshore but also some domestic as well and packaging them up and to our client base our business has evolved and we also now produce products usually it's packaging up a number of the managers that we have so an example is a diversified people and planet, it's an impactful investment, but it's a diversified fund and that invests in a range of our managers, plus some that we don't do any distribution for, they're just there for a purpose in our fund. And we also manage some of the fund internally with, with our own portfolio management team. So the Aussie Equity sleeve, for example, is done in-house. So it's now a blend of We do some of the investments ourselves and we use the expertise that we source externally, mostly overseas.
0: So we've talked a little bit about institutional clients. Without necessarily naming names, although delighted for you to mention some of your clients if you want to, who are the sort of institutions that you are helping to find these really niche and specialised investment capabilities?
1: The large super fund's have all pretty much signed up for some sort of net zero pathway they vary on the dates but but they've nearly all signed up for for that so they're all looking for climate action types of investments so they're, they're a big client base for us we also work with various insurance groups who are also trying to solve for some of these problems we work with charities and endowments charities and and some religious groups have difficulties in finding investments that have for example no investments in alcohol and tobacco I mean zero there's a lot of products out there that have a like a tolerance based to to investing which means that 5 or 10 or whatever number they decide of the portfolio could be invested in tobacco or alcohol ours is zero so we we speak to a lot of um, charities and endowments we have high net worth investors and we have financial planning wealth groups as well that we speak to so it's a fairly broad
0: range so going to the big super funds They seem like a a cohort of institutions that everyone loves to want something from. You know, there's lots of commentary around the the big super funds should invest in this, the big super funds should do that. And I think there's that sort of perception that there's a big pool of money and that super funds should be investing in everything and helping everyone, if you like. And I think particularly in the sort of venture community sometimes, I think there's a perception that there's frustration that, Super funds have lots of money, why don't they come and invest in our fund or our particular startup company? What's your response to that? I
1: would say that many of the large super funds are investing in a lot of startups and VC. I would say the largest of those is Host Plus, which is one of the groups that we work with, but it's across the board, they are doing it. It's just that they are not able to invest in one particular VC idea. They have very large pools of money. Um, In the case of Host Plus, it's getting close to $100 billion, and they need to allocate that money wisely. They have a sole purpose test to meet, which means that it has to be for investment criteria the number one objective for people's retirement so that's they're not really there to be necessarily just doing anything and everything they've got a very specific purpose in their charters for what they're to do for people who want to find a way to to tap into that money the best way to do it is to go to any number of very good venture capital and private equity firms they're really the gateway And the super funds allocate via those groups so that they get a lot of diversification. They can allocate, you know, 50 or 100 million at a time. They're quite large tickets. They have quite a lot of governance surrounding super funds. So it has to go through quite a strict criteria. They have external consultants that need to review the whole investment from an investment perspective, uh, an operational perspective, tax, all sorts of different angles And then the Superfund themselves will be looking at each of the investments as well to make sure it fits with what they're trying to build in a total portfolio. So your best shot is to go to groups. We work with a group called Artesian. They work in the venture capital space. They will be um, able to, to look at a number of external investment ideas. In particular, they've launched a female leaders VC fund. So if any of your listeners are women that are looking to, that have launched or wanting to launch a, a VC business of their own, um, these are the sort of groups that you can go to. There's also angel groups um, available out there, like the Sydney angel groups. There's plenty of those around. And Scales, another another conduit to to go to that can give you know, some, some help and advice. Um, clear things that you're going to need is a very good business plan, Everything needs to be well documented as to what the purpose of the investment is, who the team is, what the objectives are, what your milestones are. You'd need to have good
0: documentation before
1: you approach any group.
0: If this week's guest has you wondering about funding for your venture, don't forget your 25% scholarship for this August's EmpowerEd cohort. And it's just a 10-minute application away. The link is in the show notes. Now back to the interview. So you've mentioned something close to my heart, the, the Female Leaders VC Fund. For full disclosure, I sit on the investment committee and and it's you know absolutely stunning, I think, that that, that there's an institutional level fund that's investing exclusively in women-led startups. And and I'd really credit you, Karen with a lot of the reason that that fund exists, you were absolutely instrumental in helping us build the right connections. And, you know, you and I've talked about this offline and I sort of feel like you're a, a sort of, you know, whisperer, you know, you just find ways to make things happen. And and when I say that to you, you, you sort of bat me back and say, there's nothing magic in what I do. It's just uh, years of experience. But can you sort of help explain how you've got to this point where you can seamlessly make connections in a way that for other people is really difficult?
1: Um, I think it does come down to experience. I've been doing this for, for quite a long time. I left a working in a large, very, very good asset management group in the 1990s and started working with offshore managers um, at the end of the 90s. So I've been and before that, I was working for this large group for 10 years. So I'm, I'm not a spring chicken and I've been doing this for a long time. And you and you just acquire the skills over time. I mean, you can't do it as a young person. You really need to have the network. Networks are very, very important. You need to really understand the clients, what their needs are, how the asset consultants operate and how you can help them. Uh, and you need to know all the key criteria that you have to have in place for anyone to consider the investment. So I, I work with each of the managers to make sure that they've got everything in place and there's no sort of stone unturned that someone's gonna ask questions or you're not gonna have something you know, that you won't be able to deliver on. So we make sure that pretty much as, as much as possible, the investment thesis documentation criteria is really watertight before we, we go to to pitch the idea to one of the clients but it's really, there is no magic. It's really just years of experience and and sort of knowing what the clients need.
0: So you mentioned that you, you left the security of a really good job with a really good firm. What was your motivation to do that?
1: I was in those years of trying to build my career and looking at starting a family, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will, are either in that zone or have been in that zone. is quite tricky. It's a, quite a tricky pathway. And in the 90s, I think it was a little bit harder. It was quite difficult for women to have a family and get any fle- any flexible working hours at all. You did have the 12-month maternity leave, but it's quite difficult if you're in a role like myself where you you really need to maintain your networks and and people because people move around quite a lot. So it's not really feasible to take a whole 12-month period off. And for any of your listeners who are entrepreneurs, they will probably know that you never really get even to take proper holidays, let alone a full maternity period. It's a very, very difficult thing to accomplish. So I decided before I wanted to start a family to to leave the comfort of a, a, a very good place that was that had been a very good training ground for me and to work with a US-based firm. But I, I, I established their business for them in Australia. So it was just me on my own. So it definitely felt very entrepreneurial. And I was very honest with them up front as to what my plans were and that I would need flexibility. And in doing that, I negotiated with them a low base salary for myself because I don't want to let people down. If I couldn't deliver for them, I didn't want it to be a financial impost. So I made sure that the contract was a very low base, which allowed me more flexibility with my time, and I was really paid upon success. So it was a case of feeling the need to back myself, which I was comfortable in doing. They were quite quite happy to, to approach it that way as well. So I was very lucky. I think sometimes um, American firms can be much more flexible than Australians because they're very success-oriented groups. And I was lucky to start there and we did have success and that all, that all, went, um, that all went well. And then I eventually started my own business by uh, 2007 and I'm now on to my second business, but I've had that flexibility while my daughter through her whole – she's now turning 22 – So I'm out of the woods and I'm, um, it's much easier, but um, for anybody that's trying to juggle a very busy and and interesting and enjoyable career that you want to pursue in conjunction with raising a family where that's just as important to you, you know, in some ways it's easier being an entrepreneur because you can manage the time, but there's just, it it just comes at a different cost. You have to to be quite disciplined in your time allocation.
0: You've mentioned networks a couple of times and I imagine that you need to be very focused on how you network. As you say, if, you, if you're trying to work in a way that you know optimises for positive life outcomes as well as professional outcomes, what are your advice in regards to networking effectively so you're not just spending lots of time wandering around at drinks parties trying to find someone to, uh, that, that might be helpful for you?
1: Oh, yeah. You can't really do that sort of scattergun approach. I think you need to do a lot of homework. So for me, the number of clients that we interact with is reasonably finite. So we can do homework on them through LinkedIn and find out um, information, get online, find out as much as you can about what their objectives are, what they're doing to make sure you can align what I'm trying to sell to them. Um, So it's a match rather than, you know, going to them and not having done any homework would be a bad idea. <laughs> um, so I would say homework would be really the number one thing. And then just making sure that you 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 do that sort of gentle manoeuvre between when you connect with them, it needs to be useful and meaningful to them, not just a hi, how are you. My clients are too busy to have chit-chat generally. It needs to be purposeful. I try to make the interactions quick and easy, you know, dot point emails so they just have to read three dot points rather than long you know, letters. I don't do any of that. They're all very time pressured people. So you just have to be really mindful that the interactions need to be useful to them.
0: I've really noticed it as we've been talking, you seem to have a really refined capability to put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're dealing with and the ability to think about it in terms of what success will look like for them. What do they need out of this to be successful or to get a win is that something you do consciously or has that just evolved naturally over time Mm, I think it's just a natural thing
1: I have to talk to my internal team about it so we do a lot of discussions about looking after clients what does that look like it doesn't mean bombarding them it means like really thinking about being thoughtful about you know everything that you do for them thinking ahead for what their needs will be yeah, it is just putting yourself in their shoes, but also putting the clients as number one. Uh, so if that means, for example, that I want, I might want to sell them a certain expertise or investment, but really it doesn't suit them, well, I just don't go to them with that product because I'm not going to waste their time. I'm not going to waste the opportunity. And I you know, would like to leave the door open for something that really would be useful in the future. So just being really honest with yourself about why you're contacting the clients, what, what's in it for them, really.
0: And what about failures? I can imagine in, in your world, not everything turns out the way you plan. Some strategies are great, but they're just not right for the times or things don't fall into place. Are there any experiences of failure that you've really learned a lot from?
1: Oh, gosh, there's been so many. Um I think if I was to put them into sort of categories, they would be investments where I can see that there's a real value, but for whatever reason, it might be, you know, it's out of favour or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've just got the investment idea wrong, but I can't get enough traction. So I guess anybody that's in a small business will feel my pain. You've got to make a decision about when to say, okay, this isn't working and to pivot to make a change. So I think in any business, it's important to have multiple sources of income or um, so I wouldn't want to be putting all my eggs in just one basket I would want to make sure I've got you know a number of offerings that I can take to the market rather than just one Um, so I think that's always critical but if something's not working you've really got to decide when to pull the plug because that could just go down a rabbit hole and take suck up a lot of your time energy and money that you just as a small entrepreneur you just don't have that um, so you have to just, you know, look, decide when to go and you have to decide to, how to end things very well with the manager, for example, that you're trying to sell for. If it's not working, I don't see much point in in persevering, but we have a model where we're not charging managers to distribute for them. It's for the same reason that right at the very beginning I didn't want to let down my employer by going away and having a baby so I didn't, want to be, I didn't want to charge them <laughs> for my experience. I just wanted to be rewarded when I was successful and we still, we still do it that way today.
0: What about those experiences, though, where, you know, people feel let down, they feel like, you know, or, or even, as you say, managing your own internal team, that there's sort of conflict how do you manage the sort of emotional resilience that you need where there's there's people that, you know, potentially clients are making unreasonable demands or staff are difficult to deal with? Is that something that is easy for you to navigate or does it, you know, take effort?
1: That's oh, really hard. I, I would say that our clients, um, we don't deal with like mum and dad investors. We deal with sophisticated professional investors and they are so easy to work with that that is just really not one of my challenges they're they're very very good people they're they're not only very smart but they're very nice and very respectful and so they're they're lovely Um, sometimes it can be on occasion managers can be more challenging because you know they really want to get results and sometimes results take longer or we don't get them that can be a real challenge I haven't got any any easy answers for how we deal with it you just got to suck it up And staffing, I think, for everybody is is a challenge, particularly at the moment. It's just hard to find any staff. And with inflation rising and and wages rising, you really want to look after your staff because they've all got mortgages and cost of living is going up. But You're trying to balance that with growing a small business. So it's very challenging. I think staff management would be the number one challenge that we have internally.
0: What's the best advice that you've received across the journey of, of working for others and working for yourself? What's the best advice you feel like you've received that's helped you be successful?
1: Oh, gosh, there's been quite a lot. I would say one of my very large clients has said to me a number of times, always leave money on the table for others. So don't be too greedy. Don't try to take too much try to be happy with what you you can get and i think that is probably quite an important one another one i'm not sure i learned it from but genuinely looking after your clients like actually doing it rather than talking about it i think is the the best the best thing you can possibly do like if you're genuinely looking after them it will come back to you in spades and i think that so i don't know if your readers would or your listeners would um would relate to that but it's it's really important for me to look after them like it was my own money um, or my mother's money or something like that. Like I really um, sweat the small stuff for them. I've received a lot of good advice. I've I've read a a good book, actually. I um, I had a good business coach some years ago who gave me a really good book called Who Moved My Cheese? And it's a really thin book. I don't know if you know it, Catherine. It's a very thin book. So it takes like only, I don't know, like an hour or less to read. It's a very thin book that you skim through. But it's really talking through the importance of, and it's useful for people that are entrepreneurs that need to sometimes pivot. You know, sometimes if you're a little mouse, the cheese moves. And if you keep going back to where the cheese was and you don't learn to pivot, you're not going to really have a business. But I found, even though it's a small book, I found it very useful.
0: Yeah, I think it's also, I read it years ago too, and I think it's also useful around personal accountability, not sort of sitting where the cheese used to be and complaining that someone moved it. <laughs> it's it's okay, go, go and find where the cheese is yes, now. exactly. Um, any other books or podcasts or things that you really love or that you would recommend?
1: Um, well, there's some that are specific to my sector that probably may not be of broad appeal, but we listen to Fear and Greed. I don't know if you know that one. That's more of a, a, an investment-based um, podcast. I read fairly widely, so yeah, so I haven't got any sort of specific ones. I just read a very good book by Stan Grant about the current turmoil, geopolitical turmoil, which um, if anyone's looking for a good read, that's very pertinent to what's going on in the world at the moment. It was a fantastic, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend that one.
0: Thank you. And then the last question, what are you really excited and optimistic about?
1: Um, We spend a huge amount of our time working on investments that will try to combat the environmental issues, mostly carbon related, and also the gender issues. And I think we all can currently feel the effects of climate change. And I'm really, I'm really excited to be part of hopefully the solutions and be involved with investors who also want to make a genuine switch to investments that are going to not only not invest in any fossil fuels of any type, but also actually try to invest in things that will be the future power generators of the future that are, that are renewables, et cetera. I think it's a pretty exciting area to be able to be in. We really enjoy doing that. We've been at this for quite some time doing ESG-related investing, and it's a real passion for us.
0: Well, it's been terrific to spend some time with you and and I've really enjoyed the opportunity to to work with you over time on the Female Leaders VC Fund. So thank you so much and good luck with your travels to Scotland. (laughs) Thank you. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like Scale Investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.